Hello and welcome to Propnex, the property podcast about all things related to the future of real estate. I'm delighted that you've joined me today. My name is Gavin Morgan, your host. If you'd like to know a little bit more about me, please check out www.propnex.com. That's P-R-O-P-N-X.com. Or drop me a line if you'd like to chat privately on Gavin R. Morgan at propnex.com. That's G-A-V-I-N-R-M-O-R-G-A-N at propnex.com. Michael Sakmarides, welcome to Propnex and thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Michael, in time-honored fashion, it would be great if we can maybe kick off with you just giving us a little bit of an introduction to yourself, please. Yeah, thanks for having me, Gav. So I am from Charlotte, North Carolina originally, but have kind of made the rounds geographically. Started my career with JLL in Hong Kong for a number of years on the leasing side of the business in the office space. And then made my way back to the U.S. and spent about five years at Eastville Secured in Manhattan, doing all property types, for the most part, investment sales, but also some JP and debt structuring and recapitalization. And now with Cushman and Wakefield, based out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and cover essentially institutional multifamily investment sales throughout the Sun Belt. So, you know, happy to be here in the post-COVID world rather than in Manhattan office in the post-COVID world. Yeah, I'll bet. And um, I mean, Zach, I will I'll not refer back too much, but I think you and I met in Hong Kong and you probably met. I'm surprised that we're still talking, given that I think back then that was probably the highest octane version of Gavin Morgan that you met. But anyway, it was great that we had a great time together and obviously where we made our acquaintance. And I mean, you certainly powered on from there and taken advantage of a lot of great experiences that you've had, not just there, but in other places. And, you know, in terms of really interesting spots to be in, you know, the multifamily sector in a market like this, we were just drifting into it before we started recording. Give us a snapshot this time last year versus today, you know, the two sides of the coin, please. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially what happened specifically in the Sunbelt. COVID just put everything on steroids as you had a lot of people moving from high cost of living markets, particularly in the Northeast, when they moved down to the Sun Belt for better quality of life, better living. But really on top of that is two things happened that the vast majority of people have never seen, and they happened at the same time. It was essentially 20% rent growth on multifamily assets. So if you look at deals, I mean, you're getting lease tradeouts, lease tradeouts being you know, when one lease ends to the next lease, you get 20% growth between those leases. So you're getting 20% trade outs with really strong rent growth. And then at the same time, you had generationally cheap debt. The 10 year treasury was so far was nearly zero, right? So you had those two things happening at the same time. And, you know, we were selling deals in the Sun Belt sub three cap rates, right? Because Debt was so cheap and you had so much built-in growth, unlike an office lease or an industrial lease, where you have three, four percent rent bumps annually or, or CPI adjusted rent bumps. We had assets here where you're getting 20% year over year NOI growth. And so you, know, you can easily sell sub three percent cap rates in those instances because you have really strong investor demand. 
who want multifamily. And the biggest knock on the real estate market for a while there was obviously inflation started to tick up, but you can make a very strong argument that multifamily housing is one of the best inflation hedges. Granted, I think it's something like 30% of the inflation reading is based on housing costs. So there's never really been a time where rents and multifamily properties is going down and inflation is going up. So it's a pretty good internal hedge in that respect, if you're looking at allocating capital to real estate. But then kind of on top of that is essentially, as the world became more flat via COVID, you had a lot of these people who could work remote and live anywhere. The Sun Belt in particular just had a massive push of population growth and job growth. And you know, there's markets that you look at in the South that have been traditionally kind of tourism hotspots. And investors would always ask, well, where are the jobs? And a lot of those instances now, you could literally say, like, they're remote. You know, if there was someone working in a back office location making $150,000 in suburban New Jersey and their job went remote, those people aren't staying in suburban New Jersey. They're moving down to Charleston, South Carolina. They're moving to Florida. They're moving to Asheville, North Carolina in the mountains. And so we just saw a tremendous amount of rental demand in the post-COVID world. And following up on that, investors trying to figure out where to place that capital and where that growth is. So, you know, last year, you know, as kind of like last year as compared to this year, you know, and we work in the capital market space. And so we were selling a lot of deals. And last year was really all about volume. You know, every step of the way, it wasn't really just 2021. It was the end of 2020 and all through 2021 and all the way through the first quarter of this year until the music really stopped. It was just an environment where we thought we were providing real estate values that were quite aggressive. And let's say, you know, just for frame of reference, it was 300,000 a door. We put that guidance together and we'd go to the market and we'd end up at 350, 360 a door. And we were shocked. Nobody's ever seen these numbers kind of, you know, basis uh, before. And even then, the execution risk was essentially nothing because the market was so hot that as a broker, I could just award a deal to anybody who showed up and who was highest on the bid sheet because the debt and equity markets were so liquid that those groups could go get the debt, they could go get the equity. And if for some very rare, strange reason, they couldn't, you would just take that deal back out to market and get 10% higher because the rents are every month, they're just churning and churning and getting 15 to 20% more. And so the longer you held it, it was just skyrocketing in value. And that really kind of all came, listen, the Fed saw all of this happening. A large part of those rent increases and housing values was factored into inflation. So obviously the Fed is attempting to suck the liquidity out of the market to bring inflation to a halt. And so, you know, when they started increasing rates earlier this year, it really just took a lot of gas out of the market. And the strangest thing, though, is operationally, everything is fantastic. You know, are we still seeing 20, 25% rent growth? No. You know, a lot of the least trade outs that we see in the multi-space, it's probably going to be around 10%. But even that is historically high. So rent growth has come down by about half, and you know, depending on the submarket and where you are at the Sun Belt. But operationally, everything is still solid, but the debt markets and the unknown of what the Fed is going to do, you know, you can't buy a four or a five cap 
when debt is a six, right? Yeah. I mean, we can sell deals of negative leverage because there's the operational rent growth, but it's just hard when the rent growth starts to slow to sell deals 200 basis points in negative leverage. So like I'm not, in, Zach, I'm not asking you to stare into a crystal ball, but there are, I think, four or five interesting dynamics going on at the moment. And I just want to put those to you and see what your thoughts are on how they play out over the coming year. The Sunbelt markets you've talked about, I mean, most of them tend not to have an 20, 30 year historic established demand from a sector or two. They seem to, they've attracted interest from a lot of different sectors. Technology has been one of the big sectors. And obviously there's been a big, you know, I think there's been an overdue shakedown in the tech sector. And it's probably unlikely that it powers back as an occupier to the extent that it sort of has been over the last five years for quite some time. So there's the demand side. And um, obviously you've talked about debt and equity. And I mean, I just wonder, particularly with interest rates looking like they'll be reestablished at a higher level. And like, I don't think in itself that's a problem because I think people will get used to that. And Totally agree. We just need some stability. And the market will go on. But do you think we get to a new echo? I mean, we probably establish a new level of trading volumes and there's probably going to be more work to be done to close transactions relative to the last year. And I just wonder what your thoughts are of the year ahead on that and things recovering to what people feel like is a normal level of activity again. And just your thoughts on that, please. Yeah, a lot of it is just on the debt side, right? And so, like I mentioned, operationally at the asset level, multifamily in the US is doing very well. You know, if you look at it, yeah, there's 20% rent growth. And so that seems like a lot. But then if you turn around and look at your carry cost for a mortgage with interest rates, I mean, I refinanced my house in January of 2022. That interest rate has more than doubled since then. So you got mortgage costs that are like close to 7%. So it's not like people are moving into homes. So yeah. they're delaying. They're going to have renters for a longer period of time. They're not moving into houses right now. Home starts are down. Builder confidence is down on the home building side. So something's got to give somewhere because if the population growth is particularly in the South. So a lot of these lower cost markets, whether it's in Texas, whether it's Phoenix, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, markets like that, where you still have a smaller percentage of income being spent on rent than the Northeast and California, there's still some room to move there. But something has to give in terms of now what you're butting up against is replacement costs because inflation has gotten so out of control on costs to build. We're now all of a sudden selling deals below replacement costs across yeah. the Sun Belt. And so where a lot of people are struggling right now is everybody agrees we need more supply, but it doesn't make sense to build. With the debt markets where they are right now, I made the rounds last week in DC and met with the Carlisles of the world, a lot of DC-based developers. Carlisle mostly takes an LP stake in a lot of these developments, but it's just very tough to pencil new development of any kind right now. So something's got to give if you're going to have a shortage of supply, still have strong demand. Something's got to break. And in terms of what I see in the next year is I think next year is going to be very slow. I think the only people are who are going to sell are people who have to sell. They have a capital event. There will be some deals that 
not to say that people are going to lose their shirts. Some people certainly will. Some people who overlevered with high LTV floating rate bridge debt, who, you know, they may have bought a cap for a year or two years and that cap wears off and all of a sudden their mortgage payments are going to skyrocket and they're going to have a choice. They're going to say, all right, well, I can refinance this and hold out for another two or three years, or I can just sell it now. And a lot of those groups are getting a promote based off of an IRR and an IRR is so time sensitive. They're just going to choose to sell now and they'll take their single or their double. They're not going to hit a home run anymore. But you know, if you make money on deals and you get through this and, and hold on to your assets, nobody's going to shake and stick at that. I mean, a good example is there's a suburban Charlotte asset that a developer, a big institutional developer is building right now. And even at a five cap rate, they could probably sell that for 300 a unit. And the replacement cost for that asset right now is 300 a unit. You know, nobody wants to sell for a replacement yeah. cost, but they built it for 200 a unit. Even though they're selling and they're on an IRR promote, so as soon as that deal stabilizes, they're going to transact and they're going to sell it. And there's never been a time in history when anybody says, oh, I can build for 200 and sell for 300. That's a bad deal. I mean, that deal is still well, a home run. That's a good deal for everyone, the way you're explaining I mean, it's still a home run, right? So like you got institutional investors that you can say, hey, come buy a deal in Charlotte at replacement cost. And people are like, that sounds fantastic. Great. The developer built it for 200, they sell for 300, it works for them. So like those deals are going to transact. Doesn't make sense for them to hold it. So we'll see. Costs will probably come down a bit too. Though I have to say, I think that I'm hearing a lot of people saying, oh my goodness, costs, labor, but I think that's coming next. So three of the big institutional developers I met with in DC last week, they are all of the opinion that they have not seen an easing of costs yet, but it has plateaued a little bit and has been relatively flat. But at the same time, they do think that costs are going to begin to come down 15 to 18%. Beginning in about six months, they're going to see some easing of costs. And most of that is because they think a lot of the subs are, I mean, they're still busy with deals that were started. But one of the guys was talking to some of the subs and the subs were like, yeah, no, we're still incredibly busy. Like, let me look at your pipeline. And he looks at the pipeline. He's like, well, that deal's not going to happen. That deal's not going to happen. That deal's not going to happen. So they really do think costs are going to come down, not significantly, but maybe you know, 10 to 15% starting in six months. And materials seem to be already on their way, which is, you know, it's good too, because that fuels other parts of the, the economy that we need to fire when certain parts are stalling a little bit. Pivoting to the inevitable, I mean, something that I'm hearing an awful lot about at the moment as well is, you know, new OB2 is sustainability and net zero carbon operational and better carbon, all that stuff. Is the type of financing that you're seeing in multifamily in these markets, is there a lot of sustainability attached to it? Is it sustainable financing? Is that growing? Do you think we see a continued push for that in more challenged circumstances or does it falter under current conditions? You know, what I actually hear more about on the debt side is essential housing and affordability. That's where the agencies, Freddie and Fannie, you will get better spreads, you'll get better lending quotes if you are building workforce housing type product. I sit more on the equity side. You know, obviously we have to be dangerous enough on the debt side. I have not come across a lot of the lead green sustainable levels of financing as much as I do 
people really leaning in and focusing on just purely affordable housing and trying to bring down costs. Because at the end of the day, we've got a supply shortage, a housing supply shortage. If you look at the number of new homes built ever since the great financial crisis in 2008, 2009, over the last however many years that's been, sitting here at 13 years or so, there has been a below average amount of new housing historically delivered in the U.S. And you know, that's become a really significant problem. So I've seen most lenders really lean in on that side. And a lot of institutional investors actually have large mm-hmm. funds of equity allocated specifically for essential or affordable housing. Okay, that's interesting. And yeah, I'm expecting to see continued changes in that space. I mean, particularly when you look at some of the big city regulations around carbon taxes and things like that. I mean, that's high impact and is going to require a lot of activity. But I know it's 2027, but that'll come by quickly. Yeah, but you're also in New York. You've spent more time in these very, very large cities that have that kind of, you know, you look at San Francisco, you look at New York, you look at Boston. A lot of those more kind of liberal leaning cities really do put that at the forefront. Not to say that it's right or wrong, but I think if you look at some of these kind of more southern growth markets, they're more focused on just providing enough housing. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And I mean, we'll see how that all plays out, but it's just such a big space. Yeah, for sure. You've talked about opportunity emerging from current circumstances. And I mean, I think it plays out a very interesting year next year when you're going to have a lot of sales and there is an awful lot of dry powder out there still. I mean, a lot of yeah. people, a lot of capital. So a slower year, but probably still a relatively active year. Is there one big other high impact prediction that you would like to make for next year other than the explanation of some of the interesting dynamics that you've talked about that will drive deal flow? I think that the main, and this isn't even in multi, it's just something that I have a background in office as well. You know, I talk, I'm very lucky to be doing primarily multifamily right now because the office world is, you know, you talk to a lot of people, they'll tell you it's nearly illiquid at the moment, unless somebody wants to provide seller financing for their deal, or you have some pretty significant lease term left with a credit tenant. The scariest thing that I've heard recently is that only 25% of all U.S. office leases have expired after COVID. So there's 75% of the office space in the United States still has to figure out what they're going to do with their office real estate. That is staggering to me. I just look around. I look out the window here in Charlotte and like, the office market has become completely bifurcated in what tenants want. If you have a 70s, 80s, even like early 90s vintage deal with lower ceiling heights, without great window lines and without good you know, air circulation, good luck. You just can't lower your rents low enough to get anybody in that space because the office world has become 100% now about retaining talent in your workforce. And nobody, if you're going to pay for office space, you're not going to bring your employees back to an older vintage building. And so it'll be really interesting to see what happens with some of these just dinosaur old buildings. You know, it's going to be expensive to demolish. Like, can you convert the use? That aspect is going to be very interesting. And what happens long term with this work from home dynamic? That is still to be seen. You know, my dad runs the occupied space for Wells Fargo. 
And, you know, just as an example of what they're doing, you know, if they had any back office call center space and those people went remote during COVID, like they didn't renew those leases. They're going to let those leases roll and those people are going to be able to stay remote forever. But if you're a front office company culture type, you need to be around people to grow and learn. So for example, Wells Fargo, their space in Center City, Charlotte, like they have more employees here than they actually do in their headquarters in San Francisco. They are not giving up any space in Center City. They're, if anything, they're consolidating there and they're keeping that kind of front office. But the back office, a lot of that is going remote. Yeah, but even with the front office stuff, I mean, jumping into that, I mean, I agree with you. I think a lot of the front office decisions are not kicking the can down the road because I truly don't believe any organization has worked out exactly what it's going to be in the future. I think a lot of organizations, quite rightly, you've got leadership have said we're doing X because they need to make decisions and they need to show leadership. But I'm with you. I personally think as an office guy too, I think we're into a hybrid future. I don't think it ever goes back to office use. It was. And I think we're into a big period now. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the most interesting asset class now for the next 10 years, but not because it's going to be easy to make a bucket. Because it's going to need an awful lot of work to get the ship ready to what's going to be used yeah. moving forward and to what's going to be repurposed. And I suspect from a policy point of view, we're heading into a period where there's going to be an awful lot of code rewriting and stuff like that to allow the types of changes of use that you're talking about. That probably allows a much narrower band of much more dynamic office space that promotes hybrid working in the future. And then the question is, and then the big question is what happens with support. Yeah, I heard a really interesting take from a guy who runs office development for probably one of the most prolific U.S. office developers as a buddy. He said, there's a large contingent of people who think that the high likelihood of an upcoming recession will tilt the job market scales back in favor of senior leadership. Because right now, if you tell somebody, hey, you're getting back into the office, right? They'll just say, job market is so hot. They'll just be like, ah. I'm going to go somewhere else, right? So there's a large contingent of people who think that as we hit a recession, the job market gets tighter and it will lift the balance of power back to senior leadership to make people get back into the office to work. You know, I was talking to the guy who runs that development shop and he said, actually, I hear that, but it depends on how bad the recession is because if it gets very bad, and all of a sudden you have COOs who can say, oh, well, we can just give up this office space to save a buck right now. That could actually significantly hurt the amount of office demand out there. So there's so many takes. And again, like nobody has a crystal ball on it, but I don't think people understand how much that office dynamic affects the multifamily space. Yeah. It's like we're selling deals in Wilmington, North Carolina, Charleston, Asheville, where the average household income is $150,000 and they work online, right? And that works right there. In a hybrid world, multifamily and office are interdependent and single family homes are too, probably, but it's just a really interesting space. And Zach, we're probably going to have to leave it there for today. But I mean, clearly there's a huge amount to talk about around this and it's been really interesting conversation. I think some really interesting trends identified to keep an eye on there for the future and Maybe we'll pick it back up in a future conversation. But for today, I mean, I just, Michael Sakharides from Cushman and Wakefield, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us on PropNix. Thanks, Gav. So that's a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank you very much for tuning in to listen today. 
and hope to welcome you back to hear some of our future shows. As I mentioned earlier, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about me, look at www.propnex.com. That's P-R-O-P-N-X.com. Or drop me a line on Gavin R. Morgan at propnex.com. That's G-A-V-I-N-R-M-O-R-G-A-N at propnex.com. I hope to hear from you soon. And thank you very much again for tuning in today. All the very best. <laughs>